The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. You ready? I'm ready. What are we talking about here? Uh, Where eagles dare. Yes. Yes. What's the year? It is um, 1960... Eight? Yeah. Um, okay. It's a British film. It was distributed by MGM. Uh, this was a total fucking blockbuster for the time. Um, I can see why. This movie has all the elements of a huge summer action film of its day, I would say. Uh, the events of the film are supposed to be in the winter between 1943 and 1944. Um, this is, uh, if you um, need a brush up on your World War II history, we would say this is uh, kind of a the the point of the war where it's just about to turn on to our side might win. <laughs> right. Like up, up until now, it's just been the axis just kicking ass all over the place. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, D-Day is going to happen in June of 1944. And even they make reference, part of this movie's plot has to do at least some of the cover story of what's going on, which gets very intricate, uh, is an explanation of like, oh, yeah, we uh, can't let the Germans find out that we have a big, huge secret plan to win the war. Um, featured agencies are the Nazi intelligence apparatus, uh, including one uh, Gestapo officer who I guess I'll quibble about right now. Um, this guy uh, should not have been called a Gestapo officer, I think. Uh, Gestapo... Uh, contrary to Hollywood popular uh, belief, or uh, did not walk around in the black uniforms. Gestapo are plainclothes officers. Oh, um, would you be more like an SS officer or something? See, the Gestapo is the plainclothes branch of the SS. So oh. all you need to do to fix this is just just say he's SS. Don't use the word Gestapo. Um, but that's something Hollywood gets wrong in like every fucking movie ever. Apparently. <laughs> right. Um, yes, the Gestapo, I mean, they did have uniforms that they would wear to like, uh, like, like dress occasions or parties or some stuff uh -huh. like that. But when they're working in the field, they're no, they're totally, and they're usually like, like bureaucrats, like that's their cover is usually like, they're just, or, you know, recruited from like towns. Where like who who keeps all the records? You know who knows who all the families are in this town or whatever. That's who the SS mm -hmm. would recruit into the Gestapo uh, to keep eyes because they're keeping eyes on their own people. Anyways, um, MI6 is kind of our major player uh, in the movie, and then uh, Eastwood is going to be our Amer our one American uh, who is uh, purported to be working in the service of the OSS. So those That's are right, yeah. agencies, yeah. Um, the uh, director is Brian G. Hutton. This is one of his two big commercial success movies. The other is uh, Kelly's Heroes, which also stars Eastwood. Um, I guess we hadn't mentioned. Yeah, did we mention it's Clint Eastwood? 
and yes. uh, Richard, <laughs> Richard Burton. At the time, it's Richard Burton top build and then Clint Eastwood. Um, it's one of those things where, like, you know, um, years later when the, the budget knockoff or when the DVD comes out, it's uh, Eastwood above Burton. <laughs> it's just about who, who, we're, who we're remembering at the time. Yeah, Richard Burton. This is a guy I didn't know really anything about. At this time, he was pretty much one of, like, he was one of the highest paid actors in the world. According to Wiki, widely considered one of the greatest actors of his generation, with most critics kind of lamenting that uh, his uh, drinking, his alcoholism really kept him possibly from uh, reaching the true heights of his potential. Mm -hmm. um, he never did quite nail an Oscar. And this was his last uh, commercially successful movie. Yeah, as far as uh, drinking, he uh, he disappeared from set for several days. <laughs> Periodically, he knocked him, nice. he he knocked himself out filming the fight on the top of the um, cable car. Are you? <laughs> yeah, he was. He showed up drunk for that scene, knocked himself out, and they had to use a double for a bunch of his scenes. Wow. I hate to. I I don't. I don't mean to laugh. I mean, it's a it's a serious problem. He is also super famous for uh, being um, Elizabeth Taylor's husband. They fell in love in 1963 while they were filming Cleopatra. He was the guy that uh, was in there against her as uh, Mark Anthony. Uh, Richard and Elizabeth, uh, from all the reading I could do, like, it's seriously like it's a Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie situation as far as like how much their relationship was scrutinized and and publicized and and just you know just in all the papers they made a bunch of movies together with 1966's who's afraid of virginia wolf uh being described by some critics as the summit of both of their acting careers and one day uh i mean logically because we know that we're going to be doing this podcast for an infinite amount of time uh and and never stop and never run out of spy movies eventually we're gonna get around to you, the spy who came in from the cold which stars richard burton that's right mm -hmm. i'm excited for that one okay so burton was enough of a powerhouse of a you know big shot i guess is the word i'm looking for like a big shot that he could go in and just say like hey uh, Elizabeth's kids want to see me in this kind of movie. Make it happen. <laughs> like, this film <laughs> where, right? Yeah. This film where Eagles Dare, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's kids, so his, his stepkids, they uh, wanted to see a movie where he was, a, like, he kicked a lot of ass and didn't die, and that they were allowed to see. I guess some of his movies they weren't allowed to see, or he died in, or stuff like that. So they said, we want to see, we want to see you in an action movie. And so he went in and said, Hey, make me, make, put me in an action movie. The producer said, okay. Um, right now, Alistair McLean stories are really popular in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he is a guy that writes these kind of two fisted, two fisted tales, you know, of, of badass macho heroics. 
but the problem is like pretty much all of his novels had already been made into movies or had been optioned. So the producer went to McLean and said, Hey, can you just write an original story just for this film? McLean does that. Uh, he also writes the novel for it. Um, uh, McLean, like I said, like a whole bunch of, he wrote a whole bunch of books. They're kind of all formulaic. They're all kind of similar. The other one that he wrote that was uh, made into a movie is uh, Force 10 from Navarone, uh, which I haven't seen, but I understand to be like kind of structure. Like, um, let's see. Like the cover of the book of Force 10 from Navarone and the cover of the book from Where Eagles Dare would look kind of the same. Like you're getting the same okay. value proposition. You know, there's right. going to be like allied commandos, you know, they're going to be shooting Nazis. <laughs> um, apparently you always know in an Alistair McLean novel, like it's always going to be at the end. There's going to be a traitor that's revealed uh-huh. kind of stuff like that. So yeah, guns of Navarone and force 10 from Navarone had been like runners up in, in this movie choice. But uh, I'm, I, my dad, when I, I talked to him about it a bit, he was the one that mentioned where Eagles dare. I'm really glad he did. Uh, I was. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Um, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> it's probably going to rank high in my ratings because um, I, I, for some reason, I thought this was before the James Bond films. And, and I felt like the James Bond films ripped off of this, but it looking like this came after. So it, it like took the James Bond feel and like made it something that I would like, like, I really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, I'm, I'm happy oh, in terms of being like an, an action spy movie. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot more spying in this movie or at least a lot more tradecraft stuff that I was like, Oh, that's so cool. Uh, or like then, then in, you know, like there wasn't a, there were there weren't any gadgets, right? It was like maybe some recording devices and radio operations, but like it was mostly like, you know, talking to this dude using this asset, well, like unless you uh, unless you consider like somebody. a duffel bag that contains an infinite number of fucking of bombs. Oh my god, that's, <laughs> I, I, I totally wanted to talk about how many dynamite, like, like how many ticking dynamite like packs can you carry? It, like through the snow in like full gear like they never ran out of dynamite this is yeah this is definitely a movie from like this is before reloading ever was thought about (laughs) in hollywood (laughs) for sure yeah (laughs) this movie is gonna be a blast to talk about um can we can before we get over to the movie, though. Uh, I want to talk about Eastwood some. Um, this is a, a let's see. This part was also offered to Lee Marvin, who um, turned it down. Uh, and uh, apparently, dude, I, I, this is so crazy to me. Um, he, you know, because he said he'd already done the Dirty Dozen and he didn't want to do another of that type of movie which is crazy to me because dirty dozen is so fucking good yeah <laughs> that's really interesting because lee marvin was in paint your wagon with clint eastwood oh yeah that's right what year is that and he would he would have been like much older than eastwood 
I'm surprised that they, cause I, I, I liked Eastwood for this part. Cause he's kind of like the, you know, new OSS officer, you know, like he's kind of like rookie ish. You, you could tell like he's seen some, some shit like, you know, and he's, he's like capable as, you know, an OSS officer, but it seemed like he wasn't like the hardened veteran that like Burton plays, you know what I mean? Or at least, or at least he hasn't, he, he's not a guy that has achieved a, a rank of seniority. You know, right. he's a, he's a, he's an order taker, not an order giver. Right. So I would kind of feel weird about Lee Marvin in this part. And didn't you oh, mention I that? I see what you mean. Oh. I see what you mean. Although, although um, it turns out that the, the Schaefer character, that's who we're talking about here. Uh, originally written had a lot more lines and was a lot more involved in it. And it was actually Eastwood that looked at the script didn't like it, um, thought it had way too much exposition. Um, and and he actually went to them and said, you should write me as a much quieter person. And they gave, so they transferred a whole, they rewrote the script on Eastwood's request. So it's possible, like the Lee Mar when you think of Lee Marvin in the movie, you're actually thinking of a slightly different version of the movie itself not uh, just not okay. just plugging lee marvin into what clint eastwood delivers in the film oh okay that makes sense uh that's interesting that he wanted less lines usually actors are like no i need a lot more lines <laughs> right I, I well i as think that's spotlight as possible yeah i mean i think that says a lot about clint eastwood understanding clint eastwood you know which is something i think yeah. he's always been like uh no one like he's one of those actors that definitely understands exactly what he brings to the screen. Um, right. I think. Uh, and, and this is, he's just, he has just exploded in the States. This is um, 1968. Uh, Eastwood had, you know, he'd been disappointed. I guess I got it wrong. He wasn't in Gunsmoke. He was in some other wagon train or some, my dad corrected me last night on the phone, but he'd done like some Western TV stuff he was disappointed. His career wasn't going as well as he wanted it to. And so he went over to Italy and he made the Dollars Trilogy, the Spaghetti Westerns. Right. Um, and then, and then, so he's a huge hit. Like, you know, in Italy, everyone fucking loves this guy, but no one really knows him over here. But they eventually, um, someone notices how much money the Italian films made and they all get released in the U S I don't know if they're all back to back or whatever, but like they get released in 67 in the U S um, and U S audiences go fucking nuts for him. We love this shit. Uh, and so he's like, uh, all of a sudden, like out of the blue Hollywood's like, Holy shit, we can make some money off this guy. Um, and they're starting to plug him into all sorts of films. Um, I'm not sure if he's already made Hang 'em High um, by this point, but I am pretty sure this is his first non non um, Western role here right. in Where Eagles Dare. Hang 'em High is '68, so same year. Oh, same well, they year. They probably already made this. Yeah. Okay. Wow, he was busy. <laughs> They got, they put him to work. Like yeah. <laughs> when they, when they realized just how much audiences uh, went nuts for him. Yeah. They put, they put this guy to work and, and um, yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Um, so that's also probably possibly why he, uh, you know, had the insight, like my guy should be more of a quieter action, more action, less words kind of guy. Because again, he had just done the spaghetti Western movies where I think he talks very little. (laughs) Right. (laughs) If I remember them correctly. Yeah. Burton was totally cool with this. The director was totally cool with this idea, you know, because Burton is this, you know, great like stage actor kind of guy. And um, both of the actors thought it was a great idea. They got along really well on, on set. And I think, I think, yeah, it, it totally works for me. Like, you know, uh, Burton's the talky guy and Eastwood's the fucking shooty guy. Right. Uh, and, and they, um, uh, had another note on them. Uh, Eastwood and Burton reportedly like dubbed this film where doubles dare. Uh, because they were both really annoyed at how much time, uh, uh, like uh, for stunts and stuff that they were like, <laughs> said, okay, bring in, bring in the stunt doubles. Um, which I didn't, you know, I only saw that in the, I mean, in the wiki or whatever. I saw it in a few places, IMDb, etc. Um, I gotta say, it didn't. It wasn't something like glaring to me. Was that something you noticed? I didn't pick up on doubles. I, I mean, there was a lot of action. Um, I'm not surprised with the amount of action, but I, I really wasn't paying attention enough uh, to like those those camera shots where it was like, oh, this is probably a double. But now that you mention it, I, I, I could believe it because there's there's a lot of jumping and. Scaling and, and yeah. climbing and rolling and falling and parachuting and yeah, this movie so. is this movie is action packed. So yeah, I'll give a nod to the movie. Like if there were a ton of doubles work, it was well directed and and well disguised. Um, Absolutely, pretty pretty much a, a very a well made movie. Um, trivia on Ingrid Pitt, who is the lady that plays Heidi. Uh, she. Uh, God bless this lady. Uh, she's a, a concentration camp survivor who found getting through this film pretty difficult. Uh, just just being around so many people in Nazi uniforms, mm-hmm. and uh, she had uh, later escaped East Berlin by climbing over the wall. Oh wow! Wow, so, she's she's a tough one. I know, right? That's uh, yeah. That must have been rough on her, though. Yeah, seeing all the uniforms. Like being I don't know. I I can't. I can't imagine. I would. I don't think I could do it. I mean, I can't. Right. I, I have no <laughs> idea what that what that experience is like. Uh, it it sounds like wow. She, I mean, she just both of those things though. I just want to mention like that lady is way tougher in real life than she appears. Oh like, no, she yeah, looks, no, she, plays. she looks like a fuck. She looks like a fucking cream puff. <laughs> yeah, and and her character she plays is very like. Uh, you know, typical old film, like, lady character. She, she's not, like, shooting up the place or, like, kicking guys in the junk or whatever. She's kind mm-hmm. of playing the the spy, the, like, the asset that she is, you know, um, which I really liked. It was they, – they gave her quite a bit – I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, like, the majority of the film, but, you know, she was involved a lot in the operation. So I, I, I really liked that they gave her that. I mean, she gets a lot more to do than, like, a Bond girl. Or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the majority of this film is action. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a ton of it. The, 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 I think the last half of the movie is pretty much all action. And uh, this movie actually like really reminds me of a video game. Yeah, there's like a, a lot of like uh, you know just kind of sneaking in and shooting up German Nazis and stuff. So you're like running around, and then like they're in, the the prison. It's a prison that they're in, right? Or is it like kind of like a fortress? It looks like a castle. You know what I mean? Like it's, an old German castle. It is. Yeah. It's a re- it's a real castle, by the way, that also appeared in The Sound of Music uh, right, in the background. Castle Wolfenstein, right? It it's totally Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I didn't know this, but I'm seeing it in the notes that Wolfenstein was based on this movie. Uh, yeah. This is this is the movie that that they were like, hey. <laughs> Let's let's make that into a video game, <laughs> or specifically, <laughs> no, specifically it was Guns of Navarone, but it's the I mean they're, oh, the, okay. same, they're the same movie, okay, essentially, you know? <laughs> right? Okay, but yeah, you definitely would look at this movie. I think if you were a video game maker in 1981 and you're like, what, what, you know, I I want to make a game, but I don't know what game I want to make, and then you see this movie and you're like, oh, uh, let's make that game, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> Yeah, uh, Wolfenstein, Wolfenstein, uh, 92, Wolfenstein 3D. Do you remember this one? Like, this was such oh, a yeah. I, I, game I played changer the, of a I played fucking the game, right? fuck out of, the, of Wolfenstein. I didn't know there was a game before Wolfenstein 3D. Like, um, the, like the, and I didn't realize they had, like, a stealthy game in, like, 81 on an Apple II. Like, how did that even work? Like, I mean, that would have been, like, King's Quest days, right? like the first one. So it was like text-based like RPG. I don't even know how you would make a stealthy type of game. And like, from what I'm understanding, it's like, this is like predating a uh, splinter seller. Uh, uh, what's that other one with snake? Uh, Metal oh, Solid. Uh, yes. So uh, Metal Gear. Metal Solid. Gear. Metal mm-hmm. Gear. Yeah. So like, compare Wolf, Wolf is like 3d. That was like the FPS before doom. I played the fuck out of Wolfenstein 3D. Yeah. So, like, finding out that this was the movie, I'm like, oh, yeah. Except there's no secret passages in the movie. I, I, uh, but, like, oh. I remember you had to oh. find all the secret passages in Wolfenstein 3D. Wolfenstein 3D was the first game where I really felt like, like I wasn't just looking at a screen. I felt like I was there. You know? Right. It was so It was so mind-blowing. And let me tell you this story. This is when I was, like... This is when I was really blown away by this game. There was a point, I, I think, you know, I'd failed several times at the beginning. Um, and I had gotten into, a, I'm on a replay. I'd gotten into a situation. I'm totally out of ammo and I have like no health. At like, like I'm just about dead on my health bar. And the passageway up ahead, I know has like two, Nazi guys with fucking machine guns and there's no way I can kill them like with my health. Like you could go up and you could punch them, but you know, I just knew like, I don't have enough health to even take these guys out melee. And I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking like, do I need to restart? And then suddenly I remembered something. I remembered, Hey, uh, there's dogs. There's some dog food back at the beginning of the level. If I go back there and kill the dogs, I could eat the dog food and then maybe have enough health 
to maybe overtake these two guys. And I had to go way back and I, I murdered. Okay. It sounds horrible when I say it, but I murdered some dogs for their food. And I remember at that moment thinking, wow, this game has, this game has changed me. <laughs> like I'm, I'm fucking in it. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember. I think I was successful. I think I pulled it off too. I think that was just enough health. I snuck up on the next guy and got his gun and went on to proceed further through the game. Um, there's a, uh, there's homage in uh, medal of honor. There's, there was a version of medal of honor. There's a secret mission called where beagles dare, uh, (laughs) which requires, (laughs) which requires the player to infiltrate a German castle populated by anthropomorphic Nazi dogs. Oh, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, hugely, this movie's influence on video games cannot be uh, uh, overstated. Um, but then also, yeah, it goes back to the the stormtrooper effect. This this is my one complaint about the movie, which I loved. Um, the stormtrooper effect, I think, is what we call it now. Um, I think we call it from the Star Wars films, where like the stormtroopers can't hit shit, but yeah. like the, and their armor is useless <laughs> and the heroes yeah. just like hit every shot <laughs> right. and never have to reload. Um, the, it, it really started to feel like, like it, it it's just that the, the end action scene, which is otherwise great is very extended. It's very long. It's like the last half of the movie. And it's just so put in your face over and over and over that like these guns have apparently unlimited ammo. Talking about Um, like that one shot with like Clint Eastwood where he's like kind of like in a hallway and like 50 guys keep coming and he just keeps shooting at them and then hides behind the cover and then comes out and shoots them. None of them hit him once. And he's just like unloading. I think he picked up one gun from a dead guy in, in that scene. So uh, I, I guess he has half of unlimited bullets. <laughs> right. That and, was ridiculous. For the record, the weapon they're using in this movie uh, is an MP40, which has a magazine capacity of 32. Oh, um, yeah. No, but that's there's, not work we, we don't see anyone. Re- I don't think we see anyone reload in the entire movie, um, which is funny because like these days, like the John Wick movies, like reloading is like reloading is like part of the action. Like it's so integrated, like in the John Wick films, you know, they're so in love with making sure that, you know, exactly how many bullets are in each clip at any given time, you know, and it's critical to the action from moment to moment. But uh, this definitely is a movie uh, from before reloading was was a thing in Hollywood, and uh, Wilhelm scream. You know about the Wilhelm scream, right? Oh, it's just a particular ah or something. Yeah, you you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah. it's in it's in every single Star Wars movie. It's in every single Raiders of the Lark, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This sound effect, this scream, appears in literally hundreds of movies. 
<laughs> um, there's a whole story behind it, which like we could, I mean, you could, I, I think I heard about it first on a podcast. Literally, there was like a 40 minute podcast just about the history of the scream. And it's fascinating, <laughs> fascinating stuff. Um, it was like a secret joke amongst sound editors. Oh, really? For a long time. <laughs> that they Speaking would... of sound effects, I, I, I wanted to point something out. I was, and I'm glad we're talking about sound effects. This is a scene where like Burton and uh, Eastwood are just like walking down a hill in the snow. And there's just heavy breathing and sniffles. And it doesn't fit the shot at all. It's just... <gasps> <laughs> and like it like really ripped me out of the movie i was like what the hell is all this breathing <laughs> it was like really loud and like dead center you know what i mean and like i'm not like a sound expert you know uh but it was like wow they just literally had some guy breathe into a mic and sniffle and then just like, <laughs> put it on on the shot <laughs> Well, the the in this movie, the Wilhelm scream is uh, we get it when they um, when Eastwood and Burton uh, have been captured and they uh, they over overpower the guys in the car and when mm -hmm. they hit the when they hit the rock and the one driver guy goes flying out the windshield. That was our that was our Wilhelm scream. Wilhelm scream. <laughs> mm -hmm. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. The plot here is pretty convoluted. Yeah. And I want I want to hear your version of it. Like start like kind of work try to work from the from the end, like the end goal. And imagine like you're you're Richard Burton, Major John Smith. You know, what's your end goal and how do you figure out, like, how you're going to accomplish this goal? Burton, I guess, is trying to confirm the suspected moles as well as discover their contacts as well as confirm the higher up mole that got them in. Right. Um, that, to me, is the real mission. Yes. Which uh, I, I want to talk about that after we go through this mission when, when you get through your thing. Cause um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's kind of convoluted. And to me, it seems kind of risky to do, to, to, to hit all these birds with one stone. You know I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's a high wire act. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it makes more, I think it makes the most sense to, to talk, like talk about the plan, like the goal and then how mm -hmm. they planned to accomplish their goal working backwards. And then we'll work back forwards through the execution. It seems that Smith and Roland, who is like, uh, I don't know, head of intelligence or something, they know that they're infiltrated. They're MI6. They suspect this one guy, uh, Turner, but they can't prove it apparently. Mm -hmm. And they know, or at least strongly suspect about three traitors in the military, three, mm. three moles. Um, so, and again, uh, like you said, like uh, part of the juicy thing would not be just to expose these guys, but to find out their entire network of contacts. So how do you go about that? Well, 
I can think of a lot of ways to go about it that are way less complicated than what they do. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just establish that. Okay. <laughs> so what they decide to do is to uh, fake the crash landing of an important British or American, I guess British. Well, he was British. Yeah, he okay. was. You're talking to the guy that got captured that they're trying to exfiltrate. General Carnaby. Yeah. They, wait. Oh, I didn't get that. Wait. They they faked the crash and got him captured on purpose? They did. And he's Are not, you kidding he's, me? No, I'm not. <laughs> That 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 I, that adds to to uh, <laughs> what I have to say about this. Okay, that okay. makes it even worse. That makes all of this even worse. Okay, yeah. He's not actually General Carnaby. He's Sergeant Jones, an actor, right? <laughs> that they picked, and um, they they you know like he mentions like the plane that that you know crash landed in this area of um, I don't even know if it's well I guess it is Germany. Um, or Switzerland or something, somewhere like close to there. Um, you know, it's full of bullet holes. They're actually British, you know, bullet holes, but how do, how would you know the difference, he says. Yeah. Um, so it, I guess, I mean, one hole in the plant, I, like they have to assume that the Nazis would take General Carnaby, in quotes, because it's not really General Carnaby, to this place. But that could make sense because this is like, you know, the logical stronghold. It's clearly the place where they're, you know, all the major operations are happening. But uh, to do that, and it's mentioned too, the, the, the general's plane just crash landed like yesterday morning of the day of the mission. So they have to have planned this out. Like, in other words, like they've, Smith and Roland have been planning this operation for a lot longer than they're letting anyone know. Mm -hmm. So what they do now that they have planted uh, a quote unquote super valuable target that needs to be exfiltrated in the hands of the Nazis, then they go to uh, Turner and say, we're going to, we're going to involve you in this mission to get this guy out. And by the way, we're going to use these. Uh, these are the guys we're going to use for the mission. And three of the guys that they're taking for the mission. I think it's seven of them total. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, three of those guys are, they're traitors. Moles. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then he also makes sure that uh, Schaefer gets picked as one American. And he does that for some plus spy points to have at least one person on the team. Since he knows MI6 is full of holes, he's got at least one person on the team that is non MI6. That right. person, he assumes, cannot be a traitor. And I also want to say, like, I, I think, I think, as far as the three guys that turn out to be traitors, I think it's possible that maybe they weren't sure they were traitors. But well, they did write down the list, so I think they knew. I mean, they definitely right. are traitors. Right, right, right. So it's my number one worst. Uh, if these three guys and turner are all traitors well okay do the three guys know each other that i don't know uh it's, it kind of seems like it at that table you know reveal thing mm -hmm. but 
Um, I, I, I don't think we're given enough to be like, yeah, they all know that they're working together. Right. So thinking of it through Smith's perspective, he can't know whether or not they know each other. So wouldn't it seem to you that putting these three guys on the mission together, they're all going to look at each other and say, something's going on. Right. It's, yeah. It, oh, if they know each other. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if they, if they don't know each other, then probably not. But I mean, that's a big risk to take. You're right. Like, why would you do that? And if they all know each other and they all know Turner and if Turner knows them, like it just, it's, it's something the movie just completely fails. Like Alistair McLean just completely fails to think about because I don't think he thinks backwards. I just think he thinks forward. I think he just thinks like, this is, it's going to look like this and then ha ha twist, but he yeah, doesn't go back. <laughs> he doesn't right. go back and think about the inherent logic of how that actually would have played out the way I like to do. Right. And I, uh, I, I actually marked this as my number one worst trade craft um, okay. was the whole mission. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I, and and it gets what you know. Like I, I said, I didn't pick up on that. Carnaby was was actually planted as a prisoner, and and planned to get captured, um, and that just makes it kind of worse. Because um, at first we're told there's this like guy that has a lot of information that we got to get out, and we're like, okay, so we have an exfiltration mission. Once like all the cards are put on the table, and you realize this was a plan to confirm a high level mole. And his like lower level moles, the the risk that is going to occur having all of these people involved on this mission to get this guy out is going to one be costly. Two, uh, it's it, it leaves open a lot of doors for this mission to go bad because you have traitors and moles in your midst. And on top of it, you got three of them there, and you got one in the high up. Um, so. Uh, I, I don't like having all of them in this basket, like you pointed out. And I don't like that they just created this like crazy ass mission in the middle of World War II, right? Where they're going to purposely get their guy captured. And, and they didn't purposely get their guy captured to get information. They purposely got this guy captured so they could spend more money on an exfiltration mission to identify or like to confirm some moles. And that kind of concerns me because I would like to feel that an exfiltration mission should be separated from, you know, counterintelligence. And like you had pointed out earlier, I think there's a lot less complicated and less expensive and more effective ways of confirming uh, your, who, who, who's working for the other team. Um, so I, I, I mark this my number one worst trade craft. <laughs> agree 100%. Mostly, my my best plus spy points for this movie uh, are are for the ideas being cool, right? Yeah, rather than being like efficient, right? Uh, I completely agree. I, I it, like you watch the movie and you're like enjoying it, but you know, like uh, the Hitchcock ice ice box moment clicks, and you're like, well, why would why would they even do the whole thing? You know. Um, so yeah, I I loved a lot of the tradecraft, and so I'm excited to talk about that. But I'm a hundred percent on board with you on this. Like, 
the once you kind of like you know dig into the whole mission it's kind of like what why would why i don't get okay whatever right <laughs> um i think you know and it goes to the thing like you know alistair mclean you know in his writing style he just likes to spring surprises on the audience uh, even if they don't make sense in the icebox moment, uh, including like, you know, why not tell Schaefer what's going on, you know, instead of just, Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, having this, having, you know, having all this stuff, like just surprise on, on Schaefer <laughs> is, right. is just for audience, you know, you know, McLean just wants to do his magic tricks, right? you know, and, and <laughs> amaze us with how clever Richard Burton has been, but you know, uh, yeah, it's super clever, but, you know, uh, overly risky and inefficient. Uh, some quick minus spy points, I guess, missed opportunity. I think if you're going to do this, if you're going to, like, um, also, like, plant the fake General Carnaby that supposedly has information about Operation Overlord, you know, that that in itself is a really cool operation where you could just have given the Nazis a bunch of misinformation about what we're planning you know? Yeah. And, and you isolate, you know, our barium meal that we've talked about numbers of times on this podcast, you isolate certain information to certain people and then you see what happens and, you know, you keep doing it until you could confirm like, okay, this person is spreading information. Right. Um, that's, that's one of the many ways we could have gone about this. <laughs> right. Who's, who wrote, um, John Le Carre. John Le Carre would have looked at this story and just put his head in his hands <laughs> and just, shook, <laughs> and just shook, shook his head and just said, no. <laughs> right. So now we can talk about the execution, I think. Um, and that starts with how they're going to infiltrate into, you know, behind enemy lines, which is uh, like I've always said, that's one like subgenre of the spy uh genre that I've always wanted to do and I'm happy we're doing it. Um sneaking Mary in after the guys. Okay, so they parachute in, right? Mm -hmm. Um and they the team doesn't know, only Burton knows. Burton knows everything. Let's just establish that. There's no secret right. no secrets kept from him. Nothing happens in this movie that takes him by surprise. He's just he's just perfect in every way. Um, so he knows he's also got his agent, Mary, on the plane with his team, but his team doesn't know about Mary. So Mary waits until they've all parachuted out, and then she emerges from a hidden place in the plane a, a little bit later and parachutes in. Um, I like I like it. I mean, it's kind of a time compression thing, but like any of the guys could have looked up at the sky. In fact, they probably are looking up at the sky, you know, to see where everyone landed. And I think right. they'd notice an extra person. Um, but it just would have made more sense if she waited like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour later. But, right. you know, you want to compress the time for, for the movie. Mm -hmm. um, as the guys uh, gather up, uh, they find that uh, one of their number is missing. I'm actually not sure who did it. Uh, but when uh, they find him dead, uh, it's like, oh, he broke his neck, which was really suspicious. Burton notices a mark on the back that he was murdered. 
Um, and mm-hmm. I was a little confused myself. So if you can actually flesh this out for me. <laughs> well, I mean, it just has to be one of the three guys. Right. Um, one of the three traders. So, uh, you know, one of the werewolves right. on the team. You got a team, basically, you got four four villagers, three werewolves. Uh, one of the werewolves saw an opportunity to snack on a villager. Um, it's Again, it's hard to imagine that they know each other because that throws a lot of the plot under the bus from the get-go. But at least one of them saw an opportunity. Um, we got to throw some, I guess, just my, eh, not minus spy points, but minus points on the fact, you know, it's snow. There's no way that you wouldn't be able to just see like the tracks of whoever did it. Yeah. It wasn't snowing. Right. No, it's not snow. Right. Right. It's not snowing. Uh, it's, it's just pretty deep snow and, and tracks would be like just ultra obvious. Like you don't have to, you don't have to be like an Apache tracker (laughs) (laughs) to see tracks in this level of snow and, and deduce, deduce what happened. So if the traders are working together, um, then, which I, I guess I kind of assume can't be a hundred percent sure, but I will go ahead and assume it to give my number two worst trade craft, which also, if they're working together, they know each other, they know that they're werewolves, then they should all be looking for the first opportunity to just scrub this fucking mission, like just kill the villagers. Um, right. So clearly one of the werewolves saw one opportunity to improve their odds. Right. And then the next opportunity comes very soon after when Burton leaves the cabin. Uh, the count now of villagers, the ratio of villagers to werewolves in the cabin is now three to two. Right. That's That's the time to move. That's, oh, that's and that's the right. They think they think Burton's a double agent because uh, that one guy, you know, at the end of the movie, he exp- uh, Burton explains, "You picked me because you thought I was working for the Germans." Um, that's a good point because I, I, when when you were talking about this, I, I was like, "Oh, well, well." Then they would Burton would be like, "Oh, you guys killed these two dudes," but then I was like, "Oh, you're right," because they th- probably think Burton is still a double agent. That, right. that makes sense. Then, yeah. then it would be even more logical for them to jump Schaefer and the the other remaining guy in the cabin right. while while Burton's away. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't blow their mission because they're the the moles' mission was to get in as like the moles and uh, make contact with the the Nazis, right? Isn't, I, isn't that I think I think they're just, you know, informers, like double agents that should be wondering why did we get picked for this mission? Right. Like they don't they don't have a like a, a sub agenda. Their their only agenda right now should be like, well, to fuck this mission in the ass and yeah. <laughs> and tell the Germans what's going on. Right. To the extent that they know what's going on, which they don't really. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Uh, but um, Smith decides that he's going to, you know, even though he realizes this was a murder and not an accident, he keeps it, uh, he plays it tight. He doesn't let anyone know 
about his suspicions, which I guess is good. Uh, werewolf craft mm. or villager craft. <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, he, he does with the, you know, uh, pretending that he forgot to get the codes. Cause it was the rate. Oh, also it was the radio operator that got killed. So plus five points on the werewolf that uh, oh. realized that was a high priority target. Um, but Smith pretends that he forgot the codes back on the dead guy's body. And so he's got to go back out. And that's, I really like that. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. He used uh, pr- uh, pretending to forget the books to get back. And that's how he meets with Heidi. I, I really like that. Mary. Sorry. Oh, that's right. Heidi's the barmaid. No. Yeah. Mary. Uh, that was really clever. I liked that a lot. Um, yeah. Well, cause it was the radio operator that died, right? That's correct. Yeah, so he would have the code books. And and so that was an opportunity for him. Like when they were searching the body, he didn't grab the code books. And he took that as an opportunity to get out of the cabin, um, which was really good thinking on his feet, uh, which Britain's character does a lot of. So I, I, I liked Yeah, that was that was great. Now, I thought about you remember, you know, I quibbled about like uh, filling Schaefer in more about the plan. Uh, here, I also questioned whether or not he should be telling Mary more about the plan because he clearly mm-hmm. trusts her or should. Um, but I came down before I was just about to give it minus five points. And then I thought, wait a second, maybe it's not he's keeping uh, her in the dark, not because she might be a traitor, but like, what if she gets captured? Maybe he just doesn't trust her to stand up to questioning. So I gave him a pass on that. Right. But um, you're right about Schaefer. He definitely should have given Schaefer something. And I know Schaefer confronts him at the bar. He's like, what the hell's going on? And he gives him like a different story to try and like calm him down that there's some like, you know, but yeah, I, I, I would, yeah, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk about more about why, because there's, there's a point like later in the film that we'll get to that um, really makes it very risky to not tell Schaefer what's going on. Right. Uh, I think there's there's two places in the movie where Schaefer is directly asking uh, Smith, like, why am I on this mission? And Smith is just about to tell him. And then some movie stuff happens that, like, just kind of conveniently, uh, you know, uh, skips skips ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, kind of thing. But, um, yeah, overall, the tradecraft of Smith arranging his secret meetings with Heidi and Mary both here in the cabin and later in the village are well done. Um, Just, and overall the infiltration of the military camp writ large is the part of the tradecraft. I have the fewest complaints about. In fact, I have Mm -hmm. virtually none. Uh, And that's why it's going to get my best number one tradecraft, just the infiltration in general. They already have Mm -hmm. Heidi in place in the village and she's going to vouch for Mary so that Mary can get a job in the castle. So my, my number three best trade craft was having Mary planted into the fortress so that she could pull up their stuff and help them climb up into the fortress. Um, and, you know, she had the right looks. She had the right contact. She went, she was able to get through the interview and get into the, the, the fortress. Um, 
and, and the reason why I really wanted to point this out is uh, we see in a lot of movies where like uh, they'll try and show people sneaking stuff in or sneaking into things that are like pretty much impossible to do. Like you'll see a heist film or someone sneaks like a gun on a plane. Like a lot of those things that are like that the, you'll see it like impossible. And uh, I think we pointed this out in one of the Bourne films where Bourne just had like guns in airport lockers, you know, and um, that, that's how you do it. You got to like pre-plan shit, right? Like mm-hmm. if I can't take a gun on a plane, I'll just have the gun where I'm going. So I'll pre-establish a contact over there and then maybe leave some stuff like cash and passports and a gun in the locker, right? Or have someone deliver one. Um, what they did with Mary and the why she was so important uh, for this was – Using Heidi, the barmaid, who all the German soldiers know because she works at the bar. Um, and and when Mary shows up, oh, my beautiful cousin, like loud and stuff. So all the guys could hear. And then she goes to get into the castle, gets the job. And then later when they need to get in, Burton and, and Schaefer um, have like this rope that she lets down to pick up all their gear. And then there's a rope let down so they can scale the walls and get into the building. So th- that made my number three best tradecraft. Cause you don't see this a lot in, in like, especially like an action film or something. They just kind of like sneak in cleverly or something. And, and a lot of that stuff is like pretty much impossible. Like really to infiltrate something, you have to belong there, quote unquote. You know what I mean? You can't right. just like oh, yeah, go right. in guns are blazing, right? You know you need, you need inside people, which is why I like I like the Heidi, you know, that they have an agent in the village, you know, right. and, and arranging to get Mary in there. This is a movie that very easily like some version of this movie very easily could have had a scene uh earlier in the briefing where they explain just how impregnable this fortress is. You know what right. I mean? Like in a Mission <laughs> yeah. Impossible movie or a heist movie, they would have like a drawing of it and they would say, there's only two, there's only two ways in and this is guarded by this and this alarm here. So it's impossible. And the only, the only way is up the, the trolley, the cable cars, and then you have to scale <laughs> this cliff and everything. And I'm glad they didn't. Instead, we just got to see it, you know, right. and, and, uh, you know, it's a great example of show don't tell. Right, as far right. as how difficult it is to to get in here. Um, so, yeah, good on them. But before they actually get their opportunity to uh, to get into the castle, they, they get captured. Um, they're still, I guess they're at the tavern or something in the, uh, I guess it would be the SS or anyways, German guys come in and say, hey, we know that there's some, some funky monkeys in our pudding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and then what is it? Burton decides he's going to, that him and Eastwood should turn themselves in. That Well, actually that's kind of cool. Cause that's what clues him in that. Yes. They, they, they're probably right that they have uh, three moles in their midst. Right. You think uh, one of the, one of the uh, traders had an opportunity to, uh, and I think there has been another murder by this point. Yeah. So now the, it's now the seven the, has become five. So it's just uh, really just three werewolves and our two principals. Right. Um, which one of them they think is also a werewolf. Right. I don't. I don't know about that. I didn't. I didn't catch that part. Um. 
I, I do you, do you want to elaborate? I'm I'm not or you said well you said Turner picked Smith for this mission, but really in reality Smith picked Turner for this mission in a well, way that right, made yeah. right right. But uh, like he set himself up to be picked, but like when when they're in the airplane at the end of the film, uh, Smith or Burton m- mentions to him. Uh, I'm German. I have the contact with Italian intelligence. Um, you thought I was a double agent. I was a perfect pick for this mission. So yeah, you know, Burton definitely set himself up to be picked by Turner, but Turner picked Burton to be on the mission. So it's, it's conceivable to believe that the three werewolves believe that Burton is a werewolf. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's easy to imagine that one of one of our confirmed werewolves uh, is the one that, like, you know, whispered to someone, you know, off screen, uh, you know, to to scrub this mission, to mm-hmm. to get them get them all captured. Now they've got, I guess, I don't know. It does kind of sound like standard procedure. Like the um, Schaefer and Smith are the officers. The other three guys are just enlisted men, and so mm-hmm. that's how they get them split up. Um, I guess I had questioned how they, I, I mean, that's how it plays out. They put three guys in a truck and they take the two officers into a car. Yeah, but they Um, don't like, um, what I was trying to say about Burton jumping for the opportunity to turn himself in, um, they, they don't go with him. It's just him and Schaefer. So I, that's why I think Burton keyed in on who the actual three moles were at that moment and then it's like, hey, Schaefer, come with me. We're turning ourselves in. That way they're oh, he, together he in knew, the car. He knew that they would be separated because he knew, okay, right. That makes sense. Okay, good, right. good. Because I had wondered other, how, how they could have planned for, like, you know, them to be captured in this way. That three guys would go in one car, two guys would go in another. But if you know that three of your guys are traitors, then it's logical that when you guys get captured, they're going to split you up. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, they get into the castle, you know. We got our cool cable car uh, stuff or trolley. What do you call it? I don't know. A tr- tram? No, they're like those uh, go- the, the sky gondolas, I think. Because it's, it's, like yeah. it's like a ski it's like a ski lift, but it's those big covered ones, like the really nice ones. So I think they're like sky gondola or something. Right. Yeah, gondola is the word for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's our situation that I think we can get to the big scene in the big central scene in the movie where, mm-hmm. um, you know, Smith does his whole power play. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? This yes. set of, set of scenes, um, which I guess before going into it, this is a movie, like it does have a lot of tradecraft. 90% of it just happens in this room, like in this like 10, 12 minutes at the center of the movie. Yeah. Um, I could have enjoyed it being spread out a little more. Like it's right. a lot to take in all of a sudden. And it happens really fast, especially mm-hmm. after you've just been seeing bullets and bombs going off over and over. And then now we're going to have this like elaborate conversation on a table that like the, you know, the cards start getting played. Um, and it's, 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 it's a little overwhelming, but the plane ride at the end of the film helps kind of like sink in what, what's really happening. 
Um, uh, but when when Burton and Eastwood get in there, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing he does is you know tell Eastwood to sit down and pulls a gun on him and tell him tells him to shut up and that he's going to solve all the problems. And this is when Burton stop reveals- I want to stop you real quick. I'm so sorry. I, I feel like we should set the table just a little bit, just oh, okay. in case someone's listening that hasn't seen the movie or hasn't seen it in a long time. This is okay. the, um, I don't know, uh, not banquet, a meeting room, big meeting room in the heart of the castle. The, the German bigwigs are here. Uh, the fake captured General Carnaby is here. Um, some, some, you know, a couple of Nazi soldiers and our three moles are all sitting, sitting at the table. And the, uh, uh, we've learned like the, the, the audience has been let in on the fact at this point that the three guys are traitors. Uh, and they're, they're saying, ha ha, you know, they're, they're cackling over Carnaby. Like, what you going to do now, motherfucker? You know, we've, <laughs> we've definitely got the drop on you. And then that's when Smith and Schaefer shows up and take it from there, please. Um, Smith and Schaefer show up and Smith immediately points his gun at Schaefer and is like, go sit down now. Uh, shut up and sit down. Toss your gun down, whatever. And shit looks really weird. Um, he then announces that he's been working for the Reich. And that the three men that they think are double agents working for them are actually triple agents working for MI6 pretending to be double agents and that he's going to be able to prove it. And that's when shit gets really convoluted. But one of the ways that he proves it is he writes down Turner's name and shows it to the officer and confirms Turner as who they've been working for. Oh, that's right. They don't know they've been working for Turner. Right? He's claiming he's well, he's claiming that they do. I don't I don't know. I I don't know. Well, um, if yeah, I yeah. Well, cuz well, he asked if them- they if they were working for Turner, then he could just assume that when he does his next power play, which is to force them to write down all their contacts, Turner's name just could have been on that list. So he needs to separately uh, confirm Turner, who he has under suspicion, and he just does this by showing him secretly showing him this name, and mm-hmm. the guy just like nods, like yeah, that's right, that's right, right. And and then he asked the three, where was like, uh, d- do you know your contact? So I don't think they knew who their contact was. They they're just, maybe they're doing like a cutout or a dead drop type of situation, and asked them to write down the list of the names and all of the li- what is it? The lists match up. Is that how? No, the lists don't match up because he doesn't have, he's pretending he has a list. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure how the list actually proves that what he was saying. Oh, okay. Well, first the lists don't prove anything. Okay. In re in reality, but what he's pretending that they would prove is that if these guys are really like, I'm saying these guys are MI six. You thought that they are on your side, Mr. German guy. You thought that they were Nazis. 
and that I'm MI6. Well, guess what? Actually, I'm a Nazi and they're MI6. So how about that? (laughs) Um, By the way, you know what his cover name is? Okay, his name is John Smith. You know what his cover name is? What? Johann Sch- Johann Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair McLean, um, master. One of, one of the one of the cool things that he does to confirm, and it turns out John Smith's actually a triple agent working for the MI6. He has a contact at Italian intelligence, and he has like one of the head Nazi guys give a call to the dude at Italian Italian intelligence to uh, confirm his identity and, you know, he shows him a scar and tells him how he got it. And they're like laughing and joking at each other. And, and that was really cool. Like he's already set himself up with all of these different branches to kind of like keep himself like agile intelligence wise. You know what I mean? Like where like his loyalties lie in different places and he can actually play it off. So that means like MI6 has been feeding Italian intelligence information and he's coming in pretending to be a th- like a third triple agent working with the Nazis and he proves it by like contacting the head of Italian intelligence and being like yeah it's me and on top of that uses uh, Turner's name as a confirmation and then there was like a third thing that he was able to do to prove his identity and and it was like really elaborate but it was actually like really well thought out and probably could have worked it's just kind of like improbable to believe that someone would able to pull all this off but it's conceivable i guess yeah it's kind of like um let's see it's james bond level of suspension of disbelief but it's so much better like more clever and intricate than anything james bond ever does yeah (laughs) is is how i would put it um so yeah that that's your best i so maybe you can help me with this i'm not i'm not sure uh so the italian guy i mean smith describes his relationship with the italian guy as the italian guy believes that i'm uh an informer that I'm working on Team Nazi, um, while pretending to be uh, British on Team Britain. So the confusing part for me was that I would think the Italian guy wouldn't expect Smith to be like po- uh, appearing as a Nazi. He would expect him to be appearing as a British intelligence guy. Right. right, but he's trying to confirm his identity, and the Italian guy thinks he's working for the 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 Axis, right? And so, if he's getting a call from somebody from Team Nazi, trying to confirm this guy's identity, he's gonna be like, "Yeah, I work with him all the time." Uh, I don't know if that's good tradecraft wise, and he it should raise a little bit of an eyebrow, like, "Why are you calling me, and why is he there?" But if if the goal is to be like, "Hey, I've been working for you." don't kill me, um, then then it makes a little bit more sense. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. Um, there was a, a, a little bit that I had to throw out my uh, best tradecraft number three. Um, mm-hmm. Near the beginning of this situation, 
uh, before Smith has started like pulling all his shenanigans, um, where he specifically asked uh, the the colonel, the major, whatever, the Nazi, the head Nazi guy, to call in an enemy guard. You know, he says he he's doing this because he doesn't want to be the only guy in there with a gun, you know, right. in case something shady happens. Now, that's pretty risky. Uh, the colonel might as well have asked for 20 guys to come in. Right. Which would have shit everything. <laughs> right. Um, but in general, the idea of disarming Schaefer and specifically asking for someone else that you can trust to be present with a gun, um, it's totally ballsy. And independent of other factors, uh, I'll give it my best number three because it's a big step toward establishing trust. Big. That is super ballsy, yeah. Uh, but I, I did want to point out my worst tradecraft number three. We were talking about not giving Schaefer information. Um, this would have been a good situation to have given Schaefer information. If you're going to be like, put the gun down, sit the fuck down, and then announce I'm a Nazi spy – um, Schaefer believes he's on his own. Uh, this is a really risky move. And um, Schaefer might have tried to take a chance to pick up the gun and shoot him, which is what Smith has Schaefer do after the the SS Gestapo officer comes in. Um, so uh, I, 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 I do like the ballsy move of, hey, let me build trust with the Nazis who I'm trying to build trust with by having a guard come in. But I also wanted to point out it was a bad idea to not to pretend and not trust Eastwood when you haven't given him information ahead of time. And had he done that ahead of time, I would have felt much better about that scene. It's it's almost as if Major Smith knows that it's Clint Eastwood. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've seen the American movies. I can trust this American. (laughs) You know, it's like, I know I can trust him because, hey, he's the other, he's the other famous guy in the room. (laughs) He's the other famous Hollywood star. Yeah. (laughs) That kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So the list comparison is my best number two. And in case, again, so yeah, you're right. He says, I'm going to prove my loyalty by three ways. But the Mm -hmm. third way is a ruse. The third way is, hey, if these guys are who they say they are, if they're really on Team Nazi, they would know all the fucking other Nazi contacts that are in in the web. And of course, you know, and then that, I'll go ahead and say that proves to me that these three guys have to know who each other are. Because if they know, if they all know who everyone else is, then clearly they would know each other. Uh, So let's let's say that's taken as given. Um, So, yeah, so have them. You know, I have a list right here. I know who all of our Nazi contacts are that are infiltrated MI6. Let's see if they do. Let's give them some pencil and paper. Have them write down all these names. Yeah. And then, you know, he collects the books and he says, all right, take a look. And then here, take a look at my list and see if it matches. Well, it's pretty goddamn cool. His list is blank. He doesn't have a fucking list. Right. (laughs) That was really cool. Why did I give this? Oh, that's right. This would have been my best number one. Again, just by being clever, not by being efficient or realistic. Um, 
But I, I gave the number one just to the infiltration in general, because that was the only like unassailable part. But uh, yeah, right. uh, you were going to say? Um, I really liked how well Burton thinks on his feet in this. And um, at some point, the SS Gestapo guy walks in and immediately, without even blinking an eye, he now changes his entire story. He's like, I've been a Nazi uh, infiltrator and I've discovered this entire table is plotting to attack the the oh, yeah, the, the Fuhrer. Right. <laughs> yeah, just right off the bat. So I got my number two best tradecraft was just just on the fly, just being like, all these men here are plotting to kill the Fuhrer. We have to take care of them, which gives him an opportunity to eyeball Schaefer, to have Schaefer pick up the gun and then start pointing it at uh, the Gestapo guy. And and it was it was really yeah, I liked it. It was quick thinking. Yeah. I don't I don't know how well someone could play that off. That's that's like mad balls, right? Like you're just like, uh, okay, this is the solution. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play the bluff right now and take every moment of an opportunity for me to kind of like get Schaefer to get a gun. And I know he's mm-hmm. gonna do it because he's Clint Eastwood, you know. Right. Yeah, there was there was that part for sure. Like, you know, he's uh the SS guy is like, give me give me those books, you know. And, uh, you know, he specifically, like, stands and hesitates, like, in, you know, blocking line of sight right. uh, between SS guy and, and Eastwood and trusting that he's Clint Eastwood, which he is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was also earlier, you know, that one guard that he had, had uh, uh, called in. Um, it's when he passes the the lists, you know, for the colonel to inspect and, and check the comparison. He knows that that's the moment everyone's attention is right on those lists. And you see him, he's standing behind the high back chair of the other German guy. And there's a really subtle motion. You can see it like where he's getting his, you know, getting his gun ready because he, he knows the shit's about to go down. Uh-huh. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, and then we begin the big escape part with all the shooting and all the explosions. Um, and then unlimited which, supply dynamite. Yes. Yes. Uh, which, um, yeah, again, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. It's a long scene. It's just like over that extended period of time, that infinite ammo thing just kept intruding on, on my awareness. Um, I guess I only have quick trade craft notes for the, uh, last half of the movie. Uh, cause it's mostly action. I have my worst number three. Uh, minus spy points for taking the traders out with them, or at least attempting to. Um, I think it's overly risky. It has no obvious benefits that I yeah. can think of. Yeah, none at all. I think that bothered just... me. Yeah, and, and they just you... followed them along. Like they kind of had a gun on them, but like they, you know, there was a lot going on. They had a lot of opportunities to get away. So either shoot them or leave them. I don't see any reason to take on the extra weight. I don't think there was any way for Mary to have known in advance where to meet Smith and Schaefer. Um, like how, how does anyone know where the three uh, traders would be taken? Um, even if Smith and Schaefer find out, like how does Mary know? I don't know. Um, there was that moment in the film where um, Schaefer is sneaking up on the radio operator yeah. And the guy turns around and sees him and instantly like freaks out and hits the alarm. Right. Why did he freak out? Schaefer's, you know, you're a Nazi. Schaefer's a Nazi. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And that was like I the went... slowest sneak ever. And, <laughs> and oh, yeah, like... just walk in. Just walk in and say, Heil Hitler. You know, yeah, hey, yeah. we're all Nazis here, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. What you listening to? Oh, that's some good music. Here, pop, pop, pop. You're dead. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I wonder, <clears throat> I'm not sure why they're pulling Heidi out. Uh, your thoughts on this? Do you think her cover's still secure? She's pretty valuable. She's in a pretty valuable spot. I I agree with you. Other than she had just gotten there, and she was probably going to be interrogated. You know what I mean? Hi- um, talk about Heidi, the the barmaid. Oh, Heidi. Lady. Yeah. Oh. Oh yeah. No, that was a yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I mean, she, uh, she did vouch. She did vouch for Mary. And Which by the end of the movie, trouble. I think everyone that knows that is dead, but maybe they didn't uh-huh. know that that would be the case. So they had always planned to pull her out. So I don't know, but it just, it just tripped my radar a little bit. Like you've got this agent that's probably spent months, if not years, establishing their cover in a very, very good spot, you yeah. know, uh, for intelligence. So maybe she doesn't need to come out uh, with the rest of the team. And then, um, yeah, uh, Turner, who is our, uh, like, big werewolf daddy, I guess, yeah. <laughs> uh, shows up in the uh, plane that they're making their escape in. Um, I guess I guess I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's convenient for the movie, for sure, so that uh, Burton can do his final reveal. And say that, you know, I showed your name to the colonel and he didn't blink. So you're my it guy. It was also his mission, right? Didn't he pick the team? Yeah, well, I think somehow he was led to believe that he picked the team. Oh, right. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> right. Well, well you, one got, thing you got yours that, right oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that bothered me about Turner... Uh, at the end, when there's the big reveal and Burton's like, I know you're the mole. I've already confirmed it. Um, and then he get, Turner's like, well, what now? And he's like, well, you're going to go home and be tried. But there is another option. And and the other option Turner figures out is to jump out of the plane and die. Uh, I have no idea why this is in the movie. Um, even for, like, movie's sake. It, it seemed kind of silly. But it made my number two worst tradecraft why are you going to let the mole kill themselves? Um, you could get a lot of information out of Turner about who he was working with and what he was doing and all kinds of good stuff. You can offer him like, you know, a slap on the wrist. There's, there's all kinds of shit you could do with Turner. You triple that flip that motherfucker. You triple flip him uh, or whatever. You know, you don't, you don't just be like, Hey, you're going to get tried, but you could like kill yourself. And then we'll tell everyone you died in battle valiantly. It, it was, I, I didn't like it. I, even for storytelling, cinematic purposes, I didn't like it. Uh, yeah. But definitely don't let your mole kill themselves. That's a um, really, a that's reason. a, that's a really good one, Dave. That one sailed completely over my head. I mean, <laughs> taking, taking, taking the three guys out, that was stupid because, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, they're, it's too risky, you know, it, like yeah. the risk and benefit. But now you're fucking safe. You got yeah. the guy. Yeah. He's already there. We got like dudes in the plane with us. We got like Clint Eastwood, you know. Uh it yeah, it, it just bothered me. So I had to I had to definitely mark that. Um 
That's all I have on stuff. Did, did you yeah, that's the tradecraft of the movie. Let's debrief this bitch. Yep. <clears throat> okay. No big secret. Uh, we liked we liked this movie a lot. Um, yep. Or at least we're, we're super pleasantly surprised. Uh, you Absolutely. know, it is what it what is it is what it is. Um, I think you know. I, I mean, it's not my favorite kind of movie, but uh, it was a delicious surprise. I could see it again. Uh, I'm looking forward. In fact, I bought the DVD so that I can um, hopefully watch it with my dad over mm. Christmas. I think that would be fun. I'm a I'm a three point five with special mention of uh Nazi motorcycles. I love them. Sue me. <laughs> I fucking love Nazi motorcycles. They're the best. Um I really, really enjoyed this film a lot and I'm I, I definitely want to watch it again. Um I I, I wanna say as far as like me enjoying it, I want to give it a four, but I can't really sell it as a four because it had a lot of lulling moments. Like, like I like slow films, you know, like that I'll recommend to people, but the slowness in this wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like setting a tone or an atmosphere. It just kind of was dragged out a little bit. So I'm, I think I'm going to go with a 3.5, okay. um, but um, I definitely would recommend, like, if you're into this type of like movie, like, definitely go watch it because I'll definitely watch it again. Really quick, let me pitch a, a different version of this movie um, that I think could have been like a five. Is if the entire movie, you know, the the um, the meeting room where all the mm -hmm. magic trick tradecraft stuff happens, if that was like the entire movie somehow. You know, and really like super complicate, give all these characters, all these traders, like give us all backstory on all of them and have like just, just crazy amounts of triple, double cross guessing games happening with all the characters in the room. Mm -hmm. Something like, I think like I could imagine like a Tarantino version of that where like, every, like the entire movie happens in this room, except like we get like these little side cutouts that tell us different things about the different characters and that everyone's got secret agendas that are all interlocked. Instead, what we get is just Smith is a master puppet master and everyone else doesn't know shit. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what kind of, or that's the missed opportunity of the movie. I'm not saying it drags it down. It just, it just keeps it from soaring to the heights that it could have had. Right. Um, yeah, so 3.5s for us for that. Uh, what are we going to do for our park bench rating? How realistic we got to do our best and worst in this movie? Oh, best and worst, yeah. Yeah. Let's run it down. You go. Uh, my number three best tradecraft was putting Marie, Mary in the fortress ahead of time to help pull stuff up and help the guys. You know, you can't get if you can't get through something or into something impossible, you know, it's too impossible. You you get someone that belongs there to help you get in. Um, my number two best trade craft was when the Gestapo SSS guy comes in and Burton immediately thinks on his feet and comes up with like a whole new story. You know, I, I've caught this guy pl plotting to kill the Fuhrer and uh, I've caught them red handed. So arrest them. You know, that was, that was clever. Yeah. 
And then my number one best trade craft was Burton faking uh, being a triple agent or Burton being a triple agent. Um, and like just to the degree where he like even knew like the head of Italian intelligence and could confirm his identity to the Nazis. Like just being able to like play every bedroom, you know, where if you, if you think about it, is this actually a case of quadruple agent? Because he's MI6 pretending to be on Team Nazi, pretending to be on MI6, pretending to be on Team Nazi. Yeah. And, and pretending to be on Team Italian, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a quadruple agent situation. Our first, I think. That's just how fucking deep this convoluted this web this goes. Gets. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess you would go that way. Yeah. So he's definitely triple playing the three sides, but because he's pretending to be, pretending to be, it might give him a fourth. Yeah, I that, think that so. makes sense. Um, my best number three, my my best three and two, they're both like like most of the movie, the movie at large in the tradecraft. The ideas are better than the reality. Uh, the idea of calling in a guard to demonstrate trust—that's ballsy and and just kind of cool. Uh, the list comparison is really neat. Uh, Could have been executed so much better. Uh, in a better movie, but just the the concept is is great. It's kind of the best, uh, coolest idea in the movie. But my number one tradecraft just goes to generally the infiltration in the first part of the film because it was the only part of the tradecraft that is ground felt grounded in reality. And 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 you know uh, I couldn't I couldn't find anything any way to take my little crowbar and like pry around the edges and find flaws in it. it it really was well thought out and and done. I I yeah, I that I'm 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 100% behind you on that one. You know, it also goes to the exfiltration which I I had wanted to give plus five points on the the using that snowplow bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it just turns out and demonstrates itself to be such an excellent perfect vehicle for what they need to accomplish. Uh, and they've taken the time to rig all their explosives in advance and stuff. It's really, really cool stuff. Um, over there on worst number three, pulling the traders out, trying to pull the traders out with them. I mean, we all know how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. These guys are not going to make it to the end of the movie. Um, yeah. Worst tradecraft number two, assuming, which I think we've actually proven, these three guys know each other. They should be looking to collaborate to scuttle this mission. And they had an easy opportunity where there were three of them against two good guys in the cabin. That should have been the moment to strike. Um, yeah. And then uh, absolute worst. Again, these three guys know each other. Possibly Turner knows them. But at least the three guys know each other. They should know something's up right off the bat. Like, why have we three been picked for this mission? Right. And <laughs> even if, like, even if that doesn't give them a huge advantage, which, like I said, it should, uh, like, just thinking it through, thinking, being 
John Smith and concocting this plan, he should have looked at that part of the plan and said, well, that part won't work. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my number three was tradecraft. Uh, number three, pretending not to trust Eastwood was really risky because he didn't give him any information. And I would have liked him to get, especially when they got into the fortress, to give him a heads up of, hey, this is kind of what's going to go down. Um, my number two worst tradecraft was allowing the, the, the big honcho mole Turner to kill himself. I, I don't see any reason for this. Uh, and, and they could have flipped them. They could have gotten in from, they could have done a lot. Um, that's a good my one. number. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, my number one worst tradecraft was the whole mission, uh, from start to finish, like not the infiltration or the exfiltration, but just the idea of, Let's get our guy captured so we can have an elaborate infiltration, exfiltration mission just to confirm three or four moles when you could have done that separately and you could have focused on each mole that you were sus suspecting. And, and like our simplest one would have been a barium meal would have been one of the many ways we could have, you know, handled it. Not a John Le Carré joint. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> that's um, why um, that's why I'm pretty low on park bench rating uh, park benches of course being our uh, one to five scale of uh, accurate realistic tradecraft um, I think uh, man I know I had a number in mind but uh, we delayed this recording I might have slipped I think I'm down in the I'm down in the two the 1.5 area. What do you, what, what, where are you starting here? Let's, let's take a look at our list. What do we got here? Park benches. Two. Uh, I kind of want to bump this above bond. And I, I think this is better tradecraft than red. Right. And I feel like a lot of the bond. Oh, well, no, we have enemy of the state and the conversation. That feels right. Sneakers, born supremacy, atomic blind. Yeah, I mean it's I, it's more you, it's more tradecraft than bond, and more tradecraft than red. But is it better, really? I I think it's better than, yeah, because because just all the asset setup that we don't really get to see a lot. Um, but I think I agree with you with a two point five, um, because I'm looking at our threes and we're looking at. Born sneakers, no way out. Oh yeah, there's no no, no way are you gonna get me to a three. Yeah, no so I, I like it. I like a two point five. Two point five sounds just about right. All right, I'll like take if it. We had a two, if we had a two point seven five, I, I, I might be, but I, I, we're not doing that. We're not, we're, we're not I think two point five is a little little high. I'm 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 more of a two guy, but uh, I won't quibble. We'll write it down as a two point five and call it good. Sounds good. Yeah, there we go. Two point five park benches. All right, what's coming up next? Uh, we're going to take a few weeks off, it looks like. Yeah, uh, I think it's three weeks or two weeks. No, it's we're going to be off for two weeks, and we're coming back uh, the 24th. Let's and, not write it down in ink. I still It might oh, be okay. three weeks. Let's revisit that plan. But a, few, a, a handful of weeks. Yeah, um, uh, but next we're doing uh, our man Flintstone. 
the man called Flintstone. Oh, the man called um, Flintstone. There we go. <laughs> if proof positive, if if anyone thought we were kidding when we started this podcast and we said we were going to do all the spy movies, as in <laughs> all of them, if anyone scoffed at us and said, you're not going to do all of them, I I show you this. We're doing The Man Called Flintstone. 1966 <laughs> Flintstones movie where uh, Fred gets recruited as a secret agent. Uh, I've been watching it, by the way. It's actually kind of fun. <laughs> really? Okay, good. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm, I'm really excited. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You can find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler. <laughs>